This morning we are going to be talking about prayer, and I realize that when some of you, if not many of you, hear even the word prayer, it doesn't elicit good feelings. That might seem strange if you love prayer, if you're all about prayer, but for many people they don't have positive thoughts when they hear that we're going to be talking about prayer, perhaps because of feeling guilty, um, maybe because of feeling manipulated because of past religious experiences, maybe um, because you're bracing for me to, because I'm going to scold you about never doing enough. Well, I want to alleviate your fears. You don't need to feel fearful this morning. Um, in fact, I think you're going to be very encouraged, tremendously encouraged, because we're going to be learning about prayer from the one who knows more about prayer than anyone who's ever lived or ever will live. Um, we're going to learn about prayer from the good one, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I hope you're ready to be encouraged, to be uplifted, uh, not guilted or scolded uh, or sent into other any other kind of negative feelings. So we are going to learn about prayer today. We're going to learn a lot, and hopefully we're going to be very encouraged. So if you have a Bible, you can look at Matthew chapter 6. So that would be the sixth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to read verses 9 through 15. So go ahead and look with me at that text if you have that text in front of you. These are the words of Jesus instructing his disciples, those who belong to him. And we hear these words from Jesus in Matthew 6 verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And my first response to that is, isn't that something? I say, isn't that something in part because of what he doesn't say? He doesn't say anything about facing a certain direction. He doesn't say anything about how many times a day. He doesn't say anything about a particular physical posture. He doesn't say anything about counting beads. He doesn't say anything about shaking or chanting. And the list could go on and on and on. Isn't that something about what he doesn't say? What he does say is grand. But one of the reasons what he does say is so grand is because of what he's not saying. As someone has observed, this is simple, concise, intellectually clean, and spiritually comprehensive. And I'm encouraged by that. And now we're going to take a closer look, beginning with the mandate from Jesus. But what a good mandate it is if we center our attention again on those opening words regarding prayer. He says in verse 9, pray then like this. And you could even supply, maybe some of your translations say it, you could write in the word you there in the margin because it's actually there in the grammar. But also he's been saying Others pray this way, but you pray this way. 
Others pray that way, but you pray this way. And so when he here says in our verse, pray, he's saying you, you disciples, you who belong to Jesus, unlike differentiating yourself from all others, you individuals and corporately, you pray like this. Pray like this. When you pray, contrast from verse 5, contrast from verse 7. And it's why we call it the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer because it comes from Him to His disciples. Sometimes we want to mince words and argue and say, this isn't the Lord's Prayer because the Lord never prayed this prayer. And that would be true because we're going to go on and read how uh, you're to ask for forgiveness and Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness. It's safe to say Jesus never prayed this prayer. It's safe to say in John 17, we have the Lord's Prayer. But here, we might call it the Disciples' Prayer, whatever. But I'm going to tell you, I won't scold you if you call it the Lord's Prayer. Because it is the Lord's Prayer because it comes from Him. Not because He prayed it. It comes from Him to His disciples. So it's the Lord's Prayer. It's good. It's important. It's significant. And He says, pray. When you pray, pray like this. Do notice, He doesn't say, pray this. Pray like this. It's a guide. It's a model. It's very... Freeing and constrictive. Here's, here are the guidelines. Here, here, he's already said, don't pray like that. Don't pray like that. Pray like this, but it's like this. It's helpful. Now, I do suppose, as I said earlier, it's going to be positive. You don't have to have bad feelings. I do suppose there's a little bit of room for bad feelings. But short-lived bad feelings. Because, let's be honest, Jesus is offering a corrective And none of us like to be corrected, at least in the short run. So he has, in fact, said earlier, don't pray like the religious leaders from the Jews. Don't pray like the Gentiles. So he has, he is calling people out and he's saying, that's not right. And he's saying, but do pray like this. So if you're offended because you're busy praying the wrong way, well, be offended, but be offended in the short run. Jesus is attempting to bring us into touch with reality. He's intending something good, even though it might, in the short run, be not so helpful. In the long run, it is. Before we move on, maybe we could acknowledge this. Prayer is not unique to Christians. But Christian prayer is very unique. Prayer is not unique to Christians. There's all different kinds of praying. I looked up so many different kinds of praying this week, it wasn't even funny. Well, it was kind of funny, actually, but I digress. One of my kids said to me, what, do you look, what, what, what are those? You're not bringing those to church, are you? No, we're not bringing those to church. But the world is filled with praying people. Prayer is not uniquely Christian. Christian prayer is very unique. And Christ the Lord says, don't pray like that. Don't pray like that. But I'm going to help you pray like this. And so I want to echo his words today before you and with you and say, if you belong to Christ, pray like this. Pray in this way. Pray in this manner. And so now he moves on to whom we are to address our prayers. In verse 9, he says, our Father... Our Father. Notice it's our. It's communal. It's community with other believers in communion, connecting with other believers. We're together in this. Our Father. And that right there is even remarkable. 
remarkable to say our father because it's our daddy. Scholars would remind us that it's the, the equivalent to the Arabic Abba, right? We learn about that like in Ephesians. Abba, Father, we now call God our daddy. Like a small child would. A small child who's, who has all of his or her needs met. Who's not afraid. Our Father, Daddy, I need you. I, I, I need help is the idea. It's a positive relational term. Our Father. And he is not saying when you pray, pray our Father because he's promoting the universal fatherhood of God. Okay? That was, that's, that's a lie promoted by Adolf von Harnack, in case you wondered. The universal fatherhood of God is not true. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a hundred or so years ago, said, Believe the doctrine of the fatherhood of God to his people. Abhor the doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God, for it is a lie and a deep deception. Now, such harsh words. Why? Because uniquely, the disciples can say, because they belong to Jesus by faith, he's their mediator, our father. Because otherwise, universal fatherhood of God would discount sin. It would discount the fact that we're not naturally God's children. We're supernaturally God's children. And as a result of sin and rebellion, God is not our father naturally. Okay, Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, we were his enemies. Okay, in Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians it says, I almost made up a book of the Bible. In Ephesians, it describes those who are not belonging to Christ as, as aliens, as, as, as distant, as separated, as children of wrath. We don't have God as our Father. And so, again, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, neither is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but making the point If you belong to Christ by faith, like these disciples do, like you do if you're trusting in Christ, because of the work of Christ, you can say, when you pray, Daddy, new relationship, reconciled relationship. And to go even further, think about how Jesus prays when he prays. Again and again and again and again. Except when he's on the cross, bearing our sins, Jesus addresses God as Father. Unique, special relationship because the Father is pleased with the Son. And now if we're united to Jesus by faith, He is pleased with us. And we can say, what a privileged position, our Father. We're no longer alienated. We're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer enemies. He is our Father. We are sons and daughters of His because of what Jesus will accomplish for us. And you might be thinking, you're reading a lot into that text. I'm reading our prayer and our text in light of how we're supposed to be reading it according to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel account. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We're supposed to be reading it that way. Now we could read beyond this text in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 that he might, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus has many spiritual siblings. If you trust in Jesus, you're his spiritual sibling. The father is pleased with the son. And so now you can call his father your father. It is amazing. It is astounding. 
The same thing happens in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, siblings, because we belong to him because of what he's accomplished for us. So when you pray, if you're a Christian, you pray, our Father. Our as in me and Jesus. Our as in you and me, together, all who would believe. It is extraordinary that we can pray this. This is not a, this doesn't solicit bad feelings. This solicits good feelings. When I hear prayer, the prayer from the Lord, our Father. It's wonderful. Now, as a bit of an aside, some people, I mean, Captain Obvious opportunity here, Christians pray to God. Christians, Christians pray to God directly. Well, it's because we have a mediator. It's because we have a perfect mediator who's met all of the obligations on our behalf and therefore we can go directly to him and pray. Look at religions who use other mediators other than Jesus so you can go directly to the Father and what you, I guarantee you'll see is a lesser view of Jesus where he did something good perhaps but he didn't do enough. This is designed, even if we, we read it in context of the whole Bible, for us to, to see that Jesus is the one who accomplishes this new relationship for us so we can say directly to him, our Father. It's glorious. It really makes Christianity stand apart from every other religion. Ready to move on? Not sure if I am. Um, but let's move on now to the next statement he says in verse 9 where he says, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. What a great, significant, sophisticated, yet simple balance He's bringing into our minds when it comes to prayer. Our Father, Daddy, close, intimate relationship, uh, familial, positive. Our Father. And yet He reminds us and we should be remembering this when we pray and we think about God. He's for us. He's close. And yet he's in heaven. He's different. He's distinct. He's not the same as us. He's not up here. In, in good theological categories, we would say that Jesus is helping us to be in touch with reality and he's giving us two categories and help, he's helping us to think in these terms. We have imminence, closeness, but we also, at the same time, because both are true, we have transcendence. Transcends beyond, above, not the same, not on the same playing field, not in the same realm. And both are true, and we should be thinking in those terms when we think about God, even when we pray. We're going to be out of whack, to use other sophisticated theological designations. <laughs> We're going to be out of whack in our thinking and praying if we only think about imminence, closeness, or if we only think about transcendence. But it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can understand both and how both can be true at the same time as He is our unique mediator. What a great, perfect, appropriate, truthful balance is struck here in this instruction by Jesus. Think about the fact that even though maybe naturally we want God to only be imminent, if you stop and think about it a little bit longer, not only because it's true, but for other reasons as well, 
we actually want and need God to be transcendent. At first, I, I want God to be domesticated under my thumb and I can control Him like all the other idol worshipers do. But what good is that in times of trouble? What good is that in times of distress? In reality, I'm so thankful that God is close and cares about us and has the hairs on, on our heads numbered. He's imminent, He's close, He's our Father. But I'm so grateful to know that He's beyond our circumstances. The all-powerful, transcendent, great, glorious, distant, undomesticated, all-powerful God is the one we pray to. That's the way you want God. Whether it's, it's true, whether you want it or not, but truly that's the way you want God to be, to help you with your troubles. Let's move on now to, to this desire we're to have. So we're going to say, Our Father who is in heaven. Uh, but now here's the right kind of desire in this format where he says in verse 9, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. It's the word for holy. Holy be your name. Sounds good. Sounds churchy. Sounds religious. But it is good, and it's true and right, and it's what we should desire. God, my desire is that your name would be holy. Holiness is distinction. It's uh, separatedness, difference. And name, especially in the Old Testament, it's not just, well, we named him Patrick because we knew someone we liked one time named Patrick. No, it's significance. Just like Jesus is named Jesus because Jesus means... God saves. Well, God's character is built into his name. The way he is, who he is, what he does, how he acts. God, holy be your name. Distinct, separate, uh, set apart, unique. That's our prayer. That's our desire. But let's think a little bit more about this because this is deep end of the pool stuff in a profound and good way. God is holy. Throughout the whole Bible, we, we learn about it, the classic text in Isaiah 6. But again and again and again, we're called to be holy because God is holy. He's separate. He's distinct. He's not like the idols we, we make with our own hands when we cut a tree down and we make it into a little image maybe that looks like us or other created beings. And then we bow down and worship. That is until we're hungry and we want to cook our food. Then we put the idol on the fire. Then we burn the idol. It's a mess. Holy be God, the one true God. He's different. He's, he's the transcendent one. He's the creator. We're the creature. Our desire is that that would be known, that people would know that. God, holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. That's our desire, that people would see, like we've seen according to your grace and mercy, that you are not like the creatures, that you're not like the idols, that you're not like all the other gods, the gods of the nations. Our great desire would be that others would know, that we would more clearly know, that it would be known better in the church and in the world that God is different, that God is powerful, that God is not the God who helps themselves like that idol, that God is not the one who winks at sin, not like that idol. God is not the better version of me, not like that idol. God is unique and different. God, may your name be known. Holy, hallowed be your name. That's the desire of the one who belongs to Christ. We've come to know Christ. Or excuse me, we've come to know God through Christ. To know that He's different. 
hallowed be your name. Make yourself known through what you've done in our lives, through what, you've do, what you're doing in the world, through what you're doing in the life of the church, through ultimately what you've done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallowed be your name. As you can tell, I get excited about this. This is great stuff to be learning. I, I can pray that way. I can say, God, make, make yourself known in the world. Make yourself known in contrast to all of the fake gods that don't come through on their promises, that give people false hope. Make yourself known. Make yourself known because you change people's lives, because you cause people to be born again a second time, new life. Make yourself known through the Lord Jesus Christ to show that you are just and merciful at the same time and how we uniquely see this at Calvary. We sang about that earlier today. Now, before we move on, a couple of interesting things about this that would, I, I think you'll find interesting. The Jewish people and the ones that are alive during Jesus' time, at least the ones who were in power, the leaders, some of these disciples who are believers are Jewish, and don't get me wrong, but the power players are being rebuked and confronted and corrected by Jesus. Don't pray like the Pharisees. I'm going to teach you how to pray. Don't pray this fantasy kind of way that's not honoring to God. Let me help you to understand how to really pray. But I want you to think about the holiness of God's name when it comes to Jewish tradition. See, the Jews at least intellectually understood because of the Old Testament that God is holy, that God is different. He's not like the gods of the nations. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. And so good on them, as somebody I know from Australia says, good on them. They understand that at least intellectually. And rightfully so, because, for example, in Exodus chapter 3, where God says to Moses, when the people are going to want to know what his name is and who he is, who is this God who delivers us, tell us more about him. Verse 15 of Exodus 3 says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, to the Jews, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And he goes on to explain what he did. And then he goes on to say, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, and he talks about deliverance out of Egypt and doing all these great things for him, for them, excuse me. The focus the unique God, the self-existent God, the God who is loyal to His covenant promises would be the context of Exodus 3. Yahweh. He's the one. Holy is His name. He's different from the gods of the Egyptians. He's different from all the other created gods, so-called. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because they understood God is unique, distinct, holy. Therefore, His name, Yahweh, unique, distinct, holy. Hang in there. Keep thinking with me. The Jews are right to see this. So they go the extra mile to the point of even saying, you know, since God is holy and His name is holy and His name is Yahweh, we won't say His name. Now, God didn't tell them not to say His name. But in, effort, in an effort to be faithful, a desire to really understand, supposedly, we won't say Yahweh. I know Christian scholars today who won't say Yahweh. 
God didn't say don't say Yahweh, so I'm saying Yahweh. According to some Jewish traditions, when the 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 the, the person who's uh, writing and 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 transcribing or uh, uh, copying manuscripts, when they write Yahweh, time to become ceremonially clean first. Let's take a bath, if you will, spiritually. We can write it and then we have to go bathe ourselves again and things like that. Because it certainly looks like they understood that God's name is holy. And in a sense, let's say in good Australian fashion, good on them. But here's the problem. His name is holy. But if you think the way you're going to address and deal with the holy God, whose name is holy, is simply by not writing or saying his name, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. It's not enough to say, well, I'm not going to say the name. It's the ineffable tetragrammaton. I'm dropping some knowledge on you today. The unspeakable four-consonant word. The ineffable tetragrammaton. Oh, that's enough. I just, I didn't say the name. If you think that's how you're going to be reconciled to God, you're dead wrong. How is it then that we can acknowledge the hallowedness of God's name because we're acknowledging the hallowedness of God? I say to you, reading this in a Christian context, according to who Jesus is and what he came to do to save his people from their sins, the way ultimately God's name, his fame, his reputation is hallowed as distinct and unique from all others is by looking to the one and only sufficient mediator who can reconcile uh, reconcile a hallowed, holy, distinct God with sinful men and women. There's only one way for that to be done, and that would be through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would say, the one mediator between God and man. It's fascinating. I'm going to suggest to you that the ultimate way that we can say, God, hallowed be your name, would be, May the world know about Christ. May they see Christ in the gospel at work because it's the only way that we really come to grasp the hallowedness, the distance of God. Only in Christ would we see the reality of all of this coming together. Let's move on now to get more specific. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the right desire. We have the grand, grand, grand desire. Hallowed be his name. Well, here's a way his name is going to be hallowed. And here are some more detailed specifics. We have a longing and a desire when we pray for God's kingdom come, which means his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. My friends, you can pray like that. Prayer is important. Prayer is significant. Prayer is deep and profound. But prayer is rather simple. God! Your kingdom come. And if your, your kingdom come, comes, your reign comes. And that means on earth your will is being done as it is in heaven. This just makes sense. This is a great way to be praying. And I think we can look at it from two vantage points. In the ultimate sense, God come, return, second coming of Christ idea. When he will rule and reign on the earth forever and ever. God, I long for that day to come where there's no longer any injustice where every tear will be 
stopped and wiped away and will be glorified and only good things will happen. May your kingdom come. May your reign come. We long for that day. Even like the Old Testament psalmist would say, How long, O Lord? And that, that, that's the, the, the right expression. We long for that day. The new creation. When I pray, your kingdom come, I'm thinking in those terms. Someone had a good observation regarding that. They said the prayer looks for God to take action, not for worshipers to bring the kingdom into being. And I like that corrective because sometimes we slip into the mindset of we're building the kingdom and we're going to bring bring about the kingdom. No, but we definitely pray, God, your kingdom come. But we should look at it from a little bit different angle as well. Not either or, but both and. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, well, even though we're shy of the second coming, I in the here and now, in the meantime, in the betwixt time, if you will, I do long for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a desire of righteousness. And if you belong to Christ, the righteous, you long for righteous things to happen. You want the right thing to happen in the church. You want the right thing to happen in the world insofar as it can, in relationships and in homes insofar as it can. And so may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come in that sense. And so I think it would be only right and appropriate to read this, to understand this in both senses. That the the kingdom of God has been, that we're waiting for it to be consummated, the ultimate. And yet there's a sense in which because we belong to that kingdom, because the king has ascended. Last time I read the book of Acts, he ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's throne talk. That's dominion talk. So we wait for the consummated kingdom. But there is a sense in which there's been an inaugurated kingdom. We're participants. We belong. This is why, and I keep mentioning that, this, and I'll keep mentioning it, mentioning it again today. When the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're in Christ, united to the King, Christ means King, Messiah. If you're united to Christ, everyone who's in Christ is a new, new creation. Well, that's future stuff. Yeah, but if you're in Christ, because His work has already been done and we're waiting for His return only for consummation, if you're in Christ now, you are united to Him by faith. You are a new creation. You're a part of the kingdom. So that's why we would speak in terms of, of nuance. There's, there's an inaugurated sense, but we're waiting for the con- consummated sense. And typically, when in theology, people emphasize or only talk about one or the other, they end up in bad places because the Bible teaches both. Because the work of Christ is finished, the future is settled. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, is, as it is in heaven. We're thinking second coming, all wrongs made right. But in the meantime, we still want to be seeing God's will done on earth insofar as it can be in our lives and in the life of the church, certainly so. I was wondering if I was going to have enough material, but I think I might just have enough material for today. This is great stuff. I've never been so excited about the prayer from the Lord, the Lord's prayer, than I am in my life now. 
perhaps because it's so encouraging and it's so positive. Remember, these are not academicians he's talking to. By and large, fishermen. He's talking to them in terms they can understand. Oh yes, they might understand the Old Testament. They may have good categories, maybe good categories that we don't have. But he's helping them to understand, here's how you pray. Here's how you can be thinking when you pray. It's very, very encouraging and positive. Well, he, he, he's been in the, I don't want to say in the clouds, but he's been on the high level side of things. Because I've been using words like, Ineffable and tetragrammaton, even though he didn't, and, 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 and transcendent and imminent and all these categories. And, and I think he's been in that world. But now he takes it to a different level. Look at verse 11 with me, if you would. Give us this day. Here's how we pray as disciples. Give us this day our daily bread. Expression of what? It's an exp- starts with a D if you need a clue. It's an expression of dependence. We belong to Him. He already knows what we need before we ask, according to the text before the one we just got to. And yet, when you pray, say, God, give us this day our daily bread. I think it's actually meant to be a bit counterintuitive. The People he was talking to, immediate audience disciples, pretty confident in saying they weren't worried about where their next meal was coming from. Okay? They weren't homeless people. They were fishermen who understood how life worked. Maybe they didn't have full freezers and refrigerators like us, full pantries like us, minus toilet paper, but that's an aside. He he wasn't talking to to people who were poverty stricken. Okay? They weren't waiting for their next meal and kind of like wondering where it was going to come and it was going to fall out of the sky. He was not addressing people in famine. He's addressing the fishermen and he's saying to them, when you pray, you pray that God would provide your daily bread. Yeah, but we have jobs and we know farmers and we trade fish and we trade salt and we... You guys pray for God to provide your daily bread. And I'm bringing it up that way because it helps perhaps, I hope, for us to understand that even though we're different from them, we're not altogether different. God, provide my basic needs. Because even though the pantry might be full apart from you providing the job, apart from you providing the means, apart from you providing etc., etc. You get the idea. I don't even have bread. The most basic thing of all. It's a great, great thing. Acknowledge before God that you're dependent even for bread, even if you have bread already. This is a wonderful view of God. God provides. God is not a deist. God is not distant. God is not disconnected. God is the God who works in the world providentially and other ways. You probably do this even if you, you pray and you, even if you don't pray this exact same prayer, I think lots of you probably are informed by this prayer and its principles and it reflects in the way you pray. 
If I'm sitting down with my family at dinner or with someone else perhaps, maybe I don't do it every time, but it would be common for me to say, Lord, thank you for providing for all of our needs. Thank you for the jobs that we have. Thank you for our home. Thank you for taking care of us and watching over us. It's acknowledging the small things, not just the great, grandiose, may your kingdom come things. This is good for us to see. And now he moves to what we might call a more blatantly spiritual level uh, on a personal side of things. He says in verse 12, if you look there with me, you'll see it's very important. And forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. He doesn't have in mind the debt you have to Wells Fargo for your mortgage or whatever it is. He's using metaphor because he's going to go on in what he will say. I also know because of Luke's account, forgive us our sins. Forgive us what we owe when it comes to spiritual obligations. Luke 11.4 would be where he expands upon this. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us what we owe. And let me ask you, what do you owe spiritually? You owe God love with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perfect, perpetual love and devotion, treating Him like He is the one and only God. You owe that 24-7 your whole life. You owe others love that is appropriate as a fellow image bearer to love your neighbor as yourself. You owe them. And the reality is none of us have loved God perfectly. None of us have loved neighbor appropriately the way God requires. And so when we're praying, we say, God, forgive us our debts. I owe you and I owe others. The fact of the matter is I owe a lot. And if we're honest, we owe a lot. God, take care of what I owe. Take care of my problematic spiritual debts. Debts I cannot pay. Amends I cannot make. And you should know that in the Bible, forgiveness is tied to atonement. Okay? So it's not just forgiveness based upon nothing. In the Bible, forgiveness is, is based upon atonement. This is why in Hebrews, for example, Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, atonement talk, there is what? There is no forgiveness of sins. And so again, I'm reading into this prayer because I should be reading into this prayer because this prayer comes in a context, a Bible context, a gospel context, a whole canon context. And so, God, forgive me my spiritual debts, forgive me my sins because I owe you perfect love and I owe neighbor appropriate love and I've been bad. I've not been able to uphold my obligations. And so, God, forgive me. It begs, it begs the reality, forgive me through Christ. Forgive me through atonement. The atonement that Christ will perfectly accomplish when he goes to Calvary's cross and says, it is finished. Then let's keep moving on in verse 12. As we, it's emphatic for emphasis, according to grammar experts, and we, as we, verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's likewise. If you, if you belong to Jesus, 
You're asking for forgiveness. You're giving forgiveness. You belong to Christ. I owe you. You forgive me. You owe me. I forgive you. Because Christians understand how this works. We totally understand how this works. We've got huge debts. And so we ask God to forgive them. And you know what? We're forgivers too. Because we understand how this whole thing works. Maybe unbelievers understand it in part. But here, as we, we who belong to Jesus do this. Because we get it. Then verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. Kind of puzzling, at least at first. I could turn blue in the face and add qualifiers about what this probably doesn't mean and it probably doesn't mean this and it probably doesn't mean that and we better go to James chapter 1 because God doesn't tempt people and we can do that and I think there's a good place for that. It could be translated test and so let's play it out that way for a moment. God, don't test me. In other words, if that's the idea, um, God, I'm, I know I'm weak, I know my weaknesses, I know I'm frail. I know that even though I'm a new creation, I haven't actualized that or fully experienced that yet. And I still struggle. And so God, please protect me. Don't put me in a situation where I'm going to succumb to temptation. Don't lead me to testing God that I, where I can't handle it. And that's true. It's theologically true. We could prove it elsewhere. It might be what Jesus has in mind here. And if you're praying, God, don't lead me into temptation. Don't test me. Please, please, please. Because I know, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, as the song says. That's right. That might be the intention here. Or it might be the intention. In light of the close context that he's thinking of it a little bit differently. I wouldn't die on this hill. We, we can still be friends if we don't share this view. But in my mind, as I've been reading in my, my little Matthew gospel journal and underlining things and circling things with who knows how many different colors like some of you are doing, connecting dots, seeing recurring themes, the first place my mind went to when I saw lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I went to chapter 4. I drew a line all the way to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Jesus was led by God the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. In chapter 3, he's called the evil one. Lots of dots, lots of connections. Is that what he has in mind? I think perhaps it is. They just knew about Jesus being tempted like Adam was and he failed. And Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the evil one. And he succeeds victorious as what, who Paul would call the last Adam. 
I think it's a desire of acknowledging Christ. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, God, don't put me in that kind of place where you put your son, the Lord Jesus. I'm going to continue to cling to him. He, he, he's the one who, who I want and need as my representative. God, don't treat me as I'm on my own because I would never stand. Don't do to him what you did. Don't do to me what you did to him. I'm with him, my elder brother in the faith. Praise, adoration. Might not be what he has in mind, but certainly he is, he's reoccurring the words and the emphases. Makes it look a lot more like a Christian prayer. And now we'd better move on to verse 14. Verse 14 says, For if you forgive others your trespa- their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I think verse 14 and 15 represent what we would call a truism. Forgivers understand that they've been forgiven. When you look at the whole thing and the whole context, forgivers understand and forgive, I might add, because they have experienced forgiveness. On the negative, those who don't forgive, those who are not forgivers, don't understand forgiveness. And basic to Christianity is forgiveness, because we have lots of spiritual debts. And so he's making that point, no doubt. Those who will not forgive do not understand Christianity 101. We've been forgiven greatly, greatly, beyond what we would even comprehend if we were beginning to think about God's hallowed name and person. And so Christians who understand the basics like these beginner fishermen understand that they've been saved by grace, not by what they've done. They understand being forgiven to the point they can call God Father, Daddy. And so they're going to be forgivers they're going to be forgivers. This is why so often, and I don't want to take away from this, but when we try to help people through problems and conflicts that they have, whether it be in their home and in other places, and there's a refusal to forgive, it comes back to the gospel, comes back to the gospel, comes back to the gospel. And when people insist that they understand the gospel, they just won't forgive in practice. The reality is they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the gravity of their sin. They don't understand the hallowedness of God and the greatness of the atoning sacrifice of Christ that brings forgiveness. But these disciples are to get it. We're to get it of all people. We're to get it. It's good that he includes this, includes this in his prayerful instruction. It reveals so much if we're willing to forgive. I want to end by saying there is so much wonderfully missing from this prayer. I am more grateful than ever for all that's in it. It doesn't take a scientist or a rocket ship designer or a rocket scientist to figure out what he's getting at, although we can go deep. But it's so good. There's so much not in here. It's so good. It's so freeing. When you hear prayer, think, yes. 
our Father who is in heaven. Oh, he meets my needs. I want his name and reputation to be famous on the earth. I want him to come back. And in the meantime, I want his will to be done in my life and in the life of the church and in the world. Oh, these are the things. I, I, I can pray for these things. I can do this. This is not beyond me. There's no secret involved. Children can pray like this and grandparents can pray like this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we can, we can take heart that true, genuine, authentic Christian prayer according to the one who knows more about it than anyone else is not about shaking or bleeding or rocking or counting or memorizing or anything else. It's about thoughtful, clear-minded, earnest, speaking to you in light of what Christ has done for us. Encourage us, build us up. May we be men and women who pray like this because of what your Son has done for us. Encourage us. Meet our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.